You're listening to Kayama Community Radio. I'm Graham Jurassi, and together with my co-host, Diana McLaren, we will be your hosts for today, the pilot for the Kayama Community Radio. At the outset of this pilot, we would like to acknowledge the traditional owners of country throughout Australia and their continuing connection to land, water and culture. We pay our respects to the elders past, present and emerging. To explain a little about who we are, what we want to achieve and why we're here, I'd like you to listen to a number of our volunteers giving their introduction to Kaima Community Radio. The idea for Kaima Community Radio is simple. We want to help connect you and the people of the Greater Kaima area from Minamara to Jaroa to Jamboree and beyond. Talk about the things that matter to us locally. We also want to let you know everything that's happening in our community. We will bring you interviews with local artists, find out more about their work and how we can support them. We'll talk to local business and get a sense of how they're coping during these tough times. You'll be amazed at their resilience and innovation. Service organisations, schools, sporting teams and seniors groups are all important to us and we will be calling on them to tell us their stories and join us on air to promote their projects. We'll be looking to hear from you, our listener, and have you get involved. It's up to you how. You can enter competitions, submit stories, or donate your time as a volunteer. Please go to the KCR website to find out how. Or call us. We'd love to hear from you. Kayama Community Radio by the community, for the community. The idea of Kaimak Community Radio was first thought of in March of this year. A lot has occurred in the last three to four months. I want to say thank you to the volunteers who have taken us from concept to today, the pilot. For this pilot broadcast, we have brought together local identities and they are being interviewed by members or volunteers that make up Kaimat Community Radio. So today you'll hear from Mark Whelan. Mark is being interviewed by Foundation member Gabriella Cabral. Mark is a journalist and local historian. We'll also be interviewing Claire Roberts. And many of you know Claire. She is the founder and organiser of the Kaimat Makers and Growers Markets. What you probably don't know is that she's also a talented musician. We'll be playing some of her music. She'll be interviewed by Glenn Shepherd. The last interview today will be by another Foundation Committee member of the radio, Helen Lear, and Helen will be interviewing Dom, one of the members of the local band Pacific Avenue. So let's get started with our first interview of Mark Whelan by Gabriella Cabral. I'm with Mark Whelan, a local journalist. Mark is very active in the community and very passionate about local issues. His family have been part of the history of Kayama for more than 40 years. Um, lovely to speak to you, Mark. Thank you for joining me on Kayama Community Radio. Hi, Gabrielle. Hi, everyone. Now, when did you move to Kayama? Oh, we moved in about 1970 when my father became editor of the Kayama Independent. We're from Canoundra. In fact, there's about 15 families from Canoundra. It's a little bit of a local grouping. Right. My first year at the St. Peter's and Paul's Catholic School, so... Wow. Six years old. Wow. And, and why did you move to Kaima? Well, with the job, basically, Dad got a house next to the Kaima Independent in um, Shellhaven Street, and we got to move there. Dad hadn't been working that much, uh, so it was a good idea. And my mother used to holiday down here in the 50s, and so she knew the area very well. So it was potentially quite of a dream job. And once we moved to Kaima, we loved the place and we stayed ever since. Yeah, I've, um, I heard somewhere that your father ended his career as the News Limited Bureau Chief in Wollongong. That's correct. Uh, it was actually kind of an interesting setup for him because basically when he arrived there, it was a very minor sort of hole in the wall sort of setup with Phil Quine. Phil wrote um, really bad jokes. He actually published two very uh, cheesy joke books. Uh, <laughs> uh, and when you went into his um, office, there was this all these jokes tacked up on the wall were not in a appropriate for younger generations. So they weren't dad jokes? <laughs> no, they were like really awful, rude pun jokes. Oh, so, I see. Anyway, uh, but dad took it into uh, a whole floor in Kira Street in one of the buildings and it was 
they were producing their own edition of the Daily Mirror as an afternoon paper and it was quite a full-on thing and that was my very first job so when I left school um, they couldn't find anyone to cover weekends and evenings and at 18 I said what have I got to do I said just got to ring the police and the fire brigade every hour and you know go out to things I said I can do that and it was pretty good money so I did that for about nine months before they found out I never worked anywhere before. How exciting though and so you had your finger on the pulse basically you knew exactly what was happening. Oh more or less I mean some of it was a little thing I went to the world grass skiing championships held at a jamboree which was uh, my, that was one of my early jobs and I had to sort of wander around a bit of a daze so I was sort of picking the brains of some of the other journos who were there and they were just getting a little sick of me because I was going what am I supposed to do or where do we go or things like that. But over time, you sort of find your own uh, style. I actually left that job, found out I hadn't worked, and I was basically asked to leave. But slightly hilariously, I left for a month. They couldn't find anybody uh, to fill in, so I had to come back for a month. How is journalism in, in a regional area different to, say, in a big city? Because you've worked in both. It's um, much more personal relationships, absolutely, in a local town. Like, I've done council reporting and things like that, like where you go and cover the council meetings. I've done baby photos where you go and take the pictures of the brand new babies up at the hospital which is quite an interesting experience um, but uh, in a bigger in a bigger city it's it's more anonymous but also more powerful in the sense and also more rushed like when you're writing for the Canberra Times it's all very now now rush rush and so most local papers are weeklies and but you build those relationships but also to be candid in a local paper you tend to be much more self-centering about what you write about people because Part of the uh, nature of journalism is people give you confidences and then you publish those confidences. Mm. And, um, and if you break, and that tends to can break a relationship in a local town while in a, in a bigger city you just move on to the next story. I suppose commercial interests come into play as well, you know, who advertises and who doesn't. And uh, it's a small, more, small world in a small town. Well, that's very much my experience with local papers um, um, published locally, as free papers, is that the commercial. Uh, interest completely dominated the concept of any readership. Like I worked for a local paper that had six full-time advertisers, advertising representatives and two essentially junior journalists. And we, we, we were completely at the beck and call of, of the advertisers. And I actually made remonstrated with them a couple of times to management that the fact is, is nobody's reading this paper. You know, you know it, you're not being fair to the advertisers because the advertisers are getting 80% of any news page. But the readership is getting nothing. There's no reason for people mm. to pick up this paper and read it. So the advertisers are not getting eyes on the paper. You know, right. we, want, we should be doing good stories. Right. And they were just not interested and quite, mm. quite negative about mm. that. Um, uh, Mark, your, your mother is, is quite a, a community um, mover and shaker. Well, my best story about that is that um, currently the, the federal electorate north of us is called Whitlam but originally called Throsby. Why was it called Throsby? Because my mother went on a campaign on Sydney media because it was really going to be named after a, a, a local seller called Mort. As you may or may not know, everyone, uh, Mort means death in Latin. Uh, and mum was up in arms about that. So she went on 2GB and Women's Weekly and things like that and got it changed to Throsby. Uh, and I, she partly won because there wasn't a, an alternative case that no one was campaigning against the name of Throsby. Fantastic. But I mean, but when she gets it in, and she's actually, for example, it's not that well known, but my mother's had a long-term vision to clear High Marsh Park. So over the last 25, 30 years, High Marsh Park has been cluttered with the, the girl guides and the tennis courts and a few other sort of things. And it's my mother's long-term goal to get all these things out of High Marsh Park to make it an open green space. And she's succeeded. If you go there now, it's the public assembly place of Kyama. Mm -hmm. And that's what she wanted. But nobody else was talking about it 25 years ago. I was very um, interested to know about um, her involvement in, in the preservation of the um, Collins Street, the cottages, the terraces there. Um, what, what's your recollection of what happened there? Well, the thing about that is that it was dilapidated. It was actually more or less uh, abandoned for about eight to 11 years and so the council were constantly being asked what they're going to do about it. There was an original plan to knock it all down and essentially put units but the very style of this sort of terrace uh, quarrymen cottages is has a certain distinctive local style. There are actually about 20-30 locally built houses that are built in just a local style and some of those are those terraces. So what happened was is basically there was a developer 
who uh, who's uh, I won't necessarily name, but he's he's pretty well known. Stepped in and basically he decided to turn these cottages because they were small cottages. He saw them as and they were fronting one of the main streets as potentially commercial shop space, but uh, and they're very strongly built. So my mother sort of played a role of essentially being a public advocate to have them preserved. But she's always taken the view that you know that the, a uh, if it's being used by the public, it's going to preserve. So she's never had a problem with the idea of commercial space. Mm. For example, and that's the same thing with the pilot's cottage, is that the pilot's cottage, which is now the museum up in Blowhole Point, uh, it's now an active space, but before it was pretty pretty abandoned. I should mention your mother's name is Frances Whalen, mm -hmm. and um, commonly called Fran. She, she had also a big role to play with the historical society. Is well, she still involved? Oh, she plays a life member eremitous role. Like she sort of pops up when she feels like it. Um, uh, when I, I was actually, uh, uh, as I worked for the Dole Project, I worked as a volunteer there for nearly three years. And I basically kept it open. They had volunteers there three days a week and I kept it open for the other four. And I was doing a lot of uh, tour groups. I was doing up to two or three tour buses a day and they were paying for it. But when you read through all the material on the quiet days, uh, basically, uh, you discover that, that mum's had a lot of fingers in a lot of pies. In fact, if you find the original um, constitution of the Crime Historical Society, it's actually based on the Canoundred Historical Society constitution that mum brought down with her when we moved. So the fact that we didn't have a historical society, but Canoundred did, is one of the reasons that there was moved to actually establish formally one and then look for a museum. But also mum's been involved in uh, different things. Quite recently, she was up to what now? Up to quite recently, she was involved with the naming committee where she was naming streets and things like that. And there's a whole criteria to what's a good name for a, a new street or a, a new new situation. And that's in the local government um, area. It's official. It still exists. It's an official committee of climate council. But, and they do have Indigenous people and a whole range of things. But one of the things that's not well recognised is how Irish this town was, an Irish Protestant, is that the bulk of these settlers who came here were from Northern Ireland, and that's actually um, uh, been a, something that's uh, influenced the culture of the town even today. One of our local doctors, she's from Fermanagh uh, recently, and she was quite shocked to realise that uh, most of her... Her patients had great-grandparents who also came from Fermanagh. She had no idea that Kaima... But Kaima has been called the island of the South Seas and with the basalt and the rolling hills with the green grass of the dairy, it's got a very similar look to a lot of Northern Ireland. Oh, and that would have been an attraction, you think? Oh, it, it brought familiar skills. Like the thing about the quarrying is that that was a skill that was transferred over from very similar quarrying that was happening in Northern Ireland. In fact, um, when there was a massive... Um, did, uh, just museum exhibition at the National Museum in Canberra. They actually did a feature on Kaima as a massive sort of uh, multi-million dollar exhibition about Kaima having the best example of chain migration in Australian history. So people were bringing over hundreds of workers from specific villages to work the farms and you ended up with a little bit of a um, old island thing where all the rich landowners were Irish Protestants but all the farmers, farm labourers were Irish Catholics. How interesting. Uh, well, and at a, a time of, when the two didn't mix. Well, they didn't mix at all. So the fact is the Orange Societies, which is essentially an anti-Catholic version of the Freemasons, were huge around here. And uh, while the actual uh, Catholics weren't so organised, but they were very much afraid of the sort of political activism they used to have back in... Uh, in Ireland. In Ireland. And so there's actually a recorded instance where one of the local... Uh, Lando, someone took a shot at him in the middle of the night and they think it was political, but no one really knows. Wow. So, but, it, but it was that very much sort of in. It's like, for example, Kaima had a, the Kaima Rifles, which is basically um, a sort of its own militia group and that was very much driven by the, the Protestants, Irish Protestants sort of devotion to the empire. Wow. In wow. fact, where Kaima Council is now is what's called, um, what was called uh, Drill Square, where they actually had their own drill hall. And uh, they had their own drill square out the front for the Kaima rifles, as they call Kaima militia. Well, I can see now why you were a historic tour guide. What prepares you for that? I mean, uh, incessant reading or...? Well, the, the main core thing that I did is most people, I think, when they do historic research, follow a linear progression on a particular topic. So if they're interested in shipping or interested in quarrying, they tend to read up on that particular thing. And that's often how local histories are organised, is that it's a chapter on this particular thing. Because I was there a long time doing without much to do, 
until the uh, the tour guiding really took off, is I was just reading broadly on everything, and you could relate how quarrying related to shipping and dairy farming related to things like that, and you get a real broad thing, and you end up with a quite a good general knowledge. So, and as a, coming from a journalism background, I wasn't that interested in these the um, the dates and foundation stones and births and deaths, but I was more interested in the the fantastic stories of this town, and there's so many great there stories. There are so many, so many stories. And do you find that the, well, everyday tourists who, who arrive here by the, you know, do they call on tours and, and guides and, and so forth, or you don't you don't think there's a market Not, for it? Well, I've been advertising uh, on my website. I, I haven't had a lot of bookings. Uh, uh, I've actually talked to the Cairo Tourism, because there's another couple of people who've actually advertises general tourist guides more like you know you know take you around and show you like Saddleback Mountain and the blowhole but not historical and apparently those guys get no bookings either uh, generally you get if you get overseas um, tourists coming in from Asia for example they tend to have organized their own people and their own also oh, they they bring their own they guides. bring their own uh, language guides and they might use some materials but they don't hire but these local. people wouldn't know wouldn't have the historical knowledge that you have for instance well they're not usually that interested it's usually that like Kaima people for example don't realize um, that the the blow hole which I I've claimed and I and now New South Wales terms claim is the largest one in the world is an international significant tourism site. I mean, when you go up to the blowhole most days, there's thousands of people traversing through there on buses every day. Uh, and, you know, and that does feed the economy, but it's people don't realise how big it is. It's, we're like the, the Three Sisters. So if you're an international tourist, you'll do the Three Sisters in the Blue Mountains and you'll do the Kaima Blowhole. Then you do the Opera House and then you go home on the plane. It sounds, yeah, absolutely. Well, um... What's next for Mark Whalen? Where what, what do you see, you know, in in, in the future? Oh, that's a, a general question. I'm currently a full time carer for my father, which is occupying my time. I've got some writing I'm doing. Uh, I'd certainly like to um, pursue more of the uh, heritage tourism, but it's with the current um, public distancing restrictions, everything's a bit uncertain. We're all thinking that. I've I've got radio plays I've written that I'd like to get produced, which are a lot of fun. Well, we'll have to get on to that, that's for sure. But well, one of them, for example, just to give an example, I did as a course, it's called Spin. And while it's a radio play, it's very specifically about the idea of fake news and how you generate fake news. So basically, it's essentially a parody of current affairs. So the very first episode starts with people going to like a drunk tank and hiring people to do fake news for a, a current affairs show. So there's hire to say... Whatever for 50 well, it bucks. sounds very current and very relevant. But we wish you luck with your projects, okay, and, and we much. certainly hope to, to hear from you again on Kaima Community Radio. I'm sure you will. Thank you for talking to us. What an illuminating interview! Thank you so much to Mark for giving us his time, and to Gabriella for conducting that interview. Before we continue on to the next interview, we want to take a moment to play a song by local artist Tom Anderson, who will be interviewed in a coming episode of KCR, but for today, please enjoy his song, Carousel.
fun piece of music. I felt transported to a vaudevillian circus of some kind. It was amazing. Uh, but let's go to our next interview with Claire Roberts, conducted by Glenn Shepherd. When coronavirus was first recorded in Australia, people's behaviour changed dramatically. There was an obsessive focus on supermarkets and how they handled their operations. Also a focus on how they would be able to continue to operate during the life of the pandemic. It was as if markets and small shops didn't exist. Local markets continued to operate during the initial stages of the pending health crisis, but as governments made decisions to isolate, lock down, socially distance people and to classify certain businesses as essential, markets found it more and more difficult to operate. Claire Roberts from the Kaima Makers and Growers Markets is with me today to tell us about how they handled this crisis in, and what's their future in the local landscape. Uh, firstly, Claire, congratulations on your efforts to keep the markets operating as long as possible during the uncertainty that, was, that you were presented with. Thanks, Glenn, and thank you for inviting me today. Wonderful. So what finally caused the markets to close, Claire? Uh, my business partner, Kerry, and I made the decision to close it on basically instructions from the uh, state government. Um, the, the word came out that we should uh, be pulling the markets back, and that's what we did. Uh, it was leading up to the last market, we thought we were still going to operate, but in the end, we just looked to the government for okay. instruction. And when was your last market day? March. Okay. Um, counting back, April, yeah, I think it was March. Okay, so we closed yeah. down in March, and and we're heading heading forward from there. Yep. So, what effects did the closures of the markets have on the storeholders? Well, mostly they were devastated. Um, this, like everybody else who lost their jobs during this crisis, they were no different. Um, most of the storeholders there rely on this as income and. I think a lot of the time it looked like the markets were just hobbyists, Okay. but I don't believe that was the case. And I guess people in the area really want to know when you're planning to start the markets again. Our next one is on the Saturday the 25th of July. Um, we were waiting for instruction from Kayama Council and it has now come through. Uh, there will be some restrictions that we have to follow. Uh, I don't have that document in front of me, but we will open on the tw Saturday 25th of July and keep operating on the fourth Saturday. Of each month? Of each month. And, that, and they are the, uh, what some would call the Black Beach Markets, the ones held there? Yes, there has been a little bit of confusion over the names of the markets, but I always just preface it with it's the fourth Saturday of the month plus some special event markets, because our licence allows us to have extra markets, four extra ones every year. Okay. Now, I see the Kaima markets as more than just markets. I witness families and friends coming together and using the markets as a social hub. Um, with that in mind, how will social distancing and sanctioning protocols actually work when the markets reopen? Well, our, our markets are spaced out quite well and we will be relying a fair bit on our stallholders to manage how many people come to their stalls and how they present their stalls. Um, this is open air, so I believe that we will be okay with that. We're going to organise the hand sanitizers and all the uh, restrictions that are required of us. We're still in the planning stage of how to make that work. Okay. But I'm, I'm confident, well, I'm confident that most of our stallholders are coming back and we will work closely with them to make sure that we follow the rules. Okay. So relying on um, social distancing and sanitisation and, and the, Yes, and the stallholders yeah. being in, are heavily involved in keeping that as it should be. So as the, uh, as the outdoor markets open again in July, or I rescheduled to open in July, is it clear how the sector will pull through this difficult time? And by this I mean, uh, do you expect a fast return of the numbers attending the markets to the level of pre-closure attendance? We've been talking to quite a few stallholders who are already back at markets in other areas. And um, my business partner, Kerry, has done a bit of research and we're hearing that the public is embracing markets really well. And so quietly confident and hopeful that everyone will come back to us and just uh, support us. 
Well, we know that uh, local markets are a vital cornerstone of the tourism dollar. Yes. And uh, give, they give us access to local, local fresh, healthy food, locally made crafts. So then are the markets an entry point into the job market and spaces for people to develop their entrepreneurial skills? Yes, um, and our market, uh, our catch cry for our market is make it, bake it, grow it, sow it. Um, the grow it part of it at this time is plants because uh, once the Wednesday farmers market opened, our produce people moved over to there, which has been wonderful for the locals um, to have that fresh produce. So when, when the farmers market opened, we did a little bit more of a shift to more of the crafty, sustainable, holistic health and went down that road and, and that's uh, been really quite successful for us. Okay, fine. I read somewhere where markets employ more people per square metre uh, of space than super, uh, supermarkets, is that correct? I have no idea but it sounds good. <laughs> okay. Are the profits generated, the markets distributed back uh, in the local economy? Uh, in many ways. Now, um, obviously the stallholders make their living and um, keep in mind that a stallholder just doesn't, at our market, doesn't just turn up and start selling things. There's a lot goes on behind in the lead up, lead up to that. Uh, all the preparation that they do, whether they're growing things, baking things or making things. So it definitely helps them. We contribute quite heavily to the tourism dollar in Kayama. Uh, people flock to markets and when we do our advertising for our market, we also promote the area. Sometimes I might do a little piece on the blowhole or Daisy, is it Daisy the cow out the front? Daisy the cow. Outside the fire brigade. And uh, uh, so people do uh, come to our market, which we, because we're specialists, we have about 60 stalls in most cases. And so that doesn't hold someone for the whole day, um, though we do employ musicians and that keeps people for a while. Things might have to change a little bit with how the uh, hot food uh, is organised for this COVID period because people won't be able to sit at tables. But they do go up to town and we know that for a fact that people head up to town after they've been to our market. And so we're contributing to the local economy in that way as well. So as lockdown restrictions are relaxed, can markets be a place where communities come together again and people can interact? Um, I, I'm thinking of older customers who live in the area and, and as such the markets are probably their only space for social contact. We have a lot of loyal followers to our market and I believe this will, as things relax, um, I don't know, crystal ball time, I don't know how long that will take. but. I imagine that people will start coming back to the market for the social side of it and I think also people will just get involved in supporting the stallholders mm -hmm. and the work that they do. So on a lighter note, Claire, my wife loves markets. <laughs> <laughs> Whilst I find markets generally a bit of an effort. Okay. Uh, so with that in mind, again, what are a couple of things that can draw people like me back to the markets again and again? Well, every year we run special events in conjunction with our markets and the one that might interest you is the V-Dub show. Uh, we try to appeal to the men in that regard. Uh, um, I, I might be sort of segregating a bit there. I know women love V-Dubs as well. <laughs> but, um, yeah, the, so in our market on fourth Saturday in October, we have a V-Dub show coming up. Um, You'll probably like my patient husband. Even though I run a market, I just cannot stay away from markets, but he comes with me at all times and doesn't matter where we're traveling, if we see a market, we stop. He gets involved as well, he wanders around, then he finds a shady spot to sit and wait for me. Exactly. That's a good thing for, for a man to support his wife if that's the way it goes. <laughs> uh, on, uh, so um, how can local residents support the markets and, as, as they return? Just come and come and see us. Come and be involved. Get involved. Yeah, come down, wander around, enjoy Black Beach. It's so beautiful down there. Our stallholders say that they have the best office in the world. They sit there when there's no 
customers in their particular store. They just sit there and look at that beautiful vista out there over the ocean. We get whales going past. We get we get an occasional aeroplane flying around, probably from Albion Park, mm -hmm. coming doing a little tour. Um, and uh, we get boats coming into the harbour. And we've had stallholders who've closed shop and gone for a swim and <laughs> come back. Okay. So, Claire, in closing, what are the important dates again? Uh, always the fourth Saturday of the month and our special events, which you just bear with me, uh, Sunday 13th of December leading up to Christmas, Sunday January 10, 2021. Our Good Friday market is always really well patronised and we do lots of things for the kids. And Sunday the 9th of May as well. So they're our special event ones. I also want to mention that um, we always have things for the children to do at our market, including our local Matilda's petting zoo. Okay, thank you, Claire. Thanks for speaking to the Kaima Community Radio today, and uh, we'll see you all at the markets on the 25th of July at Black Beach. My pleasure. Thanks, Glenn. So as was previously mentioned, Claire is also a talented musician and has shared one of her songs with us to play today. So before we finish off with our last interview, this is Almost Home. The crowd was pretty kind tonight They seemed to like my songs alright Cause at the end they stood and clapped and cheered There's sort of cool, there's misfit mob The drink down at the Nawi pub Their enthusiasm enhanced by beer Before I left I had a chat with a beer Work on the tarmac scene where the toll gates used to be, but the Labour Party took the toll away. Well, it's strange, but I still miss the man who took the dollar from my hand. He always had a cheerful word to say. Tell me if there was fog down there And always bid me please take care When you're out there on the road alone And I'm almost home Buzzing round my head So I'll 
up late and watch TV Till weariness comes over me I'll have a bath and get myself to bed And snuggle up to my man who's there Maybe kiss his ruffled hair He'll smile in his sleep Content to know Ladies The crowd was pretty kind tonight All right, and now it's time for our last interview. We have local band Pacific Avenue to tell us about their journey, and it's conducted by Helen Lear. Make sure you stay to the end to hear their latest track, My Hero. I'm Helen Lear, and today I'm chatting with Gerringong band Pacific Avenue, otherwise known as Harry, Ben, Jack and Dom. The alt-rock band are best known for their classic blend of rock and contemporary indie sounds. They've sold out shows around the country and supported acts like Tash Sultana, Lime Cordial, the Wombats and fellow South Coasties, The Bands. Their debut EP, Strawberry Skies, was released last year. I'm chatting now with the band's drummer, Dom Littrix. Hi, Dom. Hello, how are you going? Good, good. How are you coping in this crazy new world that we're living in? Yeah, it's been, been very bizarre. Um, of course, all the gigs kind of being uh, put on the back burner a bit. Um, but it's kind of everyone's in the same sort of boat, so you can't get too um sad about it but yeah no it's been good we've had time um to kind of as a band practice a bit more um we decided to sort of do like a 30-day challenge where we did like a cover a day of um other bands um and we kind of i feel like if the whole lockdown thing wasn't happening you probably wouldn't have had that time time aside to do it so that was one positive thing um we were just yeah every day it was, it was kind of hard because we'd get about I've got about six days in and we're like, we have to do this every day for the next next 24 days. But it was good. It was like forced us to get together, um, get practicing. We got a bit tighter with our stuff. Yeah, so it's, it's been it's been strange. Though. Like we had a big tour uh, that we're meant to do in March um, and it got pushed back to September. Um, yeah. So, yeah, yeah. We've just kind of been laying low practicing. Yeah. And some good news that you've just announced is that you're going to do a gig in Kayama at the Leagues Club. Yeah, that's right. Yes. We... Um, just we were a bit blown away actually because we had originally just three dates on the tour that got postponed and then it kind of all sold out so we thought oh it'd be good to add a couple of shows and then especially back in Kayama um we've played a few at at the Kayama Leagues Club before it's such a good venue too um it's sometimes yeah it's it's good to bring a bit of like live music down this way because there's not not a whole stack um going on sometimes yeah um, so yeah it's always good doing that and then we get a few mates of support bands and just make a bit of a night of it so yeah, it should be good fun. So for people that don't know you, can you just tell me a bit about how you formed, uh, what you guys are all about and where the name comes from? Yeah, sure. Um, so basically, myself and Ben, um, who's the guitarist, uh, we lived about 50 metres from each other in Gerringong. Um, we kind of knew each other through friends and that sort of family friends. Um, and I'd often kind of hear him playing guitar from my house. Um, so then it kind of just seemed like the thing... I'd, he kind of seemed that we just sort of joined. I'd play a bit of like bongo drums and drum kit and he'd play guitar and kind of busk at the markets, that sort of thing. Um, and then he knew Jack through school. We all went to Kaima High School um, and he kind of recruited Jack as the bass player. Um, and then we actually started out as a different band. So it was me, uh, Ben and Jack, we were called Tropical Wax. We had uh, Grace, a girl singer. So we did that for a little while and then a bit down the track, um, Harry came along. We kind of reformed the band a bit. Um, changed the styles up a little bit um, yeah and then we started just jamming together it felt really good um, Harry was actually went to a different high school but still in the same area kind of everyone knows everyone um, he was doing his kind of solo thing at the, at the time and Ben heard about him and yeah asked him around for a jam and then yeah and then um, we're kind of all surfing one day after jamming a few times and we're like we need a band name we're surfing down at Gerringong and kind of stumped we couldn't think of anything and then we kind of looked at the street sign it was Pacific Avenue so we kind of went with that cliche of naming the band of something like a place near where you kind of jam and that sort of thing but kind of just stuck and yeah yeah with it yeah um now you've released a new single in april my hero 
Um, yep. What was it like releasing a single during a global pandemic? How was that different? Um, it was a little like the weirdest thing about it is because usually we release a single and then we like tour um, for a straight away after it to kind of support it. So mm-hmm. not having that um, there was a bit um, was a bit strange. Cause, yeah, I don't know. Kind of usually get you release, you have all that hype, and then you kind of go and play it and stuff. So we haven't really actually played it live yet, um, which is a bit strange. But it was okay. It was kind of good in a way that I think people, because when we released it, it was right when sort of people started locking down and that sort of thing. So mm. it was good in that um, people maybe had a bit more time on their phones and stuff. So we got quite a, quite a few listens on it, which was great. Um, yeah, it was, it was, I think it was, it was positives and negatives, but yeah, cool. Yeah. And the video, which is awesome, was filmed at Miami <laughs> Beach. I'm trying to, I was trying to figure out, was that Kendall's or East's? Yeah, yeah. So it was Kendall's um, for the majority of it. And we did, the bit on the paddle boards was at Surf Beach. But yeah, mainly at Kendall's. Oh, okay. yeah. um, so you mentioned before the shows that you've got coming up in September, some of which were already sold out, which is great. Um, how is it going to work with coming back into live music? How do you think the performance is going to change? What do you think audiences coming along can expect from a live gig oh. under the new restrictions? Yeah. Well, it is very good, still up in the air sort of thing as to how it's all going to go down. Um, we're kind of a bit fingers crossed at the moment that it will be able to, um, cause we're not really sure. Most of the rooms that we're in uh, were uh, pretty small capacity. So like a hundred to 200 sort of capacity rooms. Um, we're hoping that because they are smaller capacity, it will still, still be okay. But yeah, like I guess it will be the distancing and that sort of thing. People have to be seated when they come to gigs now or um at the moment yeah there's yeah at the moment it is um we're kind of hoping in a way that it won't be by september um (laughs) yeah that's it because it it would be bits i know that you kind of when you're playing i guess that energy of everyone up there up the front dancing and that sort of thing kind of gets you going so hopefully it's all good but um i think it's we've noticed that i think as people have been missing the live music thing they've jumped onto tickets and kind of gotten behind it. And I think we're very keen to sort of get back out there. I'm hoping that, yeah, it all kind of does sort itself out a bit and we can get back to doing that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, It must be nice as well to play to a home crowd, having done a bit of a national tour and then coming back to Kayama must be pretty good. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. It's always a bit of a reunion sort of thing, kind of like catching up with mates you haven't seen since high school and, um, yeah, no, it's, it's really, especially like the younger kids from when, like, I don't know, when you kind of notice like little little grommets and stuff like running around now they've grown up and they're like kind of supporting it too. Um, yeah, and then you also see the older older crowd too, like our, our parents kind of friends and that. So, yeah, it's really lovely. So what do you see, as a bit of a big question, but what do you see as the future of the music industry moving forward and what do you think 2021 might look like for you? I think, I kind of think that people might, appreciate um music a bit more um try to get to to more gigs and stuff um but also at the same time it might it, it's gonna i think it's gonna be very hard in the sense of like festivals and that sort of thing with like international artists i think mm-hmm. it might be quite a quite a bit longer than what people think before we can have those big festivals like splendor in the grass and like the, with the international headliners and that sort of thing so i feel like there will be a lot more yeah like all all australian lineups and kind of like more local gigs um i'm hoping that maybe like small towns kind of step up a bit with kind of making making more availabilities in venues and that sort of thing to have more live music but yeah it is it, it definitely has like changed it yeah changed dramatically i think it will stay like that for quite a while i'm just hoping yeah it's just once again so up in the air we're not really 100 percent sure with no vaccine around it's kind of hard i think it will be a lot more kind of homegrown sort of stuff and hopefully like i've noticed within the, the arts community that people supporting other bands a bit more rather than competing it's kind of um everyone's kind of because everyone's doing it a bit tougher too everyone's just kind of trying to help each other out and um get behind each other's work so hopefully that keeps going yeah as a jerengom local what's your favorite thing about living here what do you think makes our area so special what is i think just it's just such a beautiful place like kind of geographically and how it looks and everything um we're currently living in bombo um like the north north end there um but yeah just all the whole area is just amazing it's kind of knowing everyone like knowing everyone here you kind of walk down the street and you kind of 
saying bumping is every second person kind of saying hi to that like kind of tight knit community. Yeah, I really like that. Especially in Jerringong, I find I've been yeah, been from Jerringong for the first twenty three years of my life. It's kind of every second person. Just being a part of that community, I think, is really lovely. Yeah. yeah, and also seeing the support like with the band. Um, I guess having the name of the band named after one of the streets in Jerringong, I feel like it's a a thing that they all kind of everyone kind of gets behind too, um, which is yeah, it's really nice. So if people want to come and see you at the Leagues Club in September, where can they go to grab some tickets? Yep. Um, so we have um, a website, so www.pacificavenue.com.au um, or the ticket links on our Instagram, like in our bio or on Facebook as well. Yeah, I think the, like the website they're selling, it's OzTix. So you can just go directly through there either. But yeah. Right. We'll, we'll pop a link up for you guys as well. Um, Dom from Avenue, thank you so much for coming on to chat to Coma Community Radio. All the best with the tour. We will hopefully see you at the Leagues Club very soon. Um, I'm going to close out with the new track, My Hero. So enjoy, everybody. Before we finish up today, we have some closing remarks from our main host, Graham Jurassic. I want to reach out and say thank you to a number of people. 
a huge thank you to the Bugle. The Bugle was the platform or the means of which we were able to reach out to our community and look for volunteers, look for support, look for funding and communicate that we were coming. And without the Bugle, I don't think we could have launched today. I'd also like to thank Gillian Walsh from Greg Walsh and Associates, local insurance broker. Gillian has helped us immensely in getting insurance for us, not directly, but introducing us to those that could provide the insurance we need before we can broadcast. I would also like to thank Carter Ferguson for providing legal assistance in establishing our association and looking at the legal entity which we now operate under. I would be remiss if I didn't also extend a huge thank you to Diana McLaren. Local identity, local comedian, born and raised for most of her life in this LGA. Diana has been instrumental from very early on in giving us technical insights, knowledge and skills. And I know that you'll get to know Diana over the next months for the energetic and fascinating woman that she is. We hope you've enjoyed listening to the pilot program of Kayama Community Radio. Should you wish to contact us and give us feedback or offer your services as our sponsor or volunteer, you can contact us via Facebook or our email, kaimakcommunityradio at gmail.com or contact us via our website, kaimakcommunityradio.org. We also have a GoFundMe website and like all startups, we would look for your support. So please visit the GoFundMe site and if you can, please pledge a donation. You've been listening to Kayama Community Radio.